Hello, friend, and welcome to Write Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a longtime medical writer who shifted from a career as a trauma OR nurse into academia and then transitioned from academia into freelance writing in continuing medical education. I've built a sustainable six-figure business that specializes in creating and evaluating educational content for health professionals, and I use my expertise in education and healthcare to guide rich, honest conversations about the practice of creating CME content with intention. And I teach medical writers how to create CME content with confidence. Write Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME. Come and join our thoughtful, provocative and valuable conversations about adult learning, teaching platforms, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME professional. Wherever you are in the content creation process, If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. I just want to jump in here before we kick off our episode today. Ben Riggs, who you might remember was on the podcast in episode 41, is our guest in Write CME Pro on June the 21st. Ben's going to be helping us think about how to focus our writing. This event is free if you're a member of Write CME Pro. And if you're not a member and would like to be part of this event, you can either join for a special three-month purchase or purchase a standalone ticket for the event. Details are in the show notes, on my website, and below the video if you're watching on YouTube. If content is king, learning cultures must be queen, as the latter goes a long way to determining learner outcomes. Frustrated with many years of checkbox, top-down, broadcast learning culture, Andrew Barry founded Curious Lion and built a better way to effect behaviour change by fostering progressive and transformative learning cultures. Andrew invests heavily in building motivation through the self-determination theory of competence, autonomy and relatedness as he believes self-determination lies at the heart of behaviour change. He recommends that creating learning cultures involves interventions at both the micro and macro levels, focusing on both the individual and the organisational culture. In this episode, Andrew outlines the building blocks required for a successful learning culture. Shared vision, collaborative peer-to-peer team learning, personal mastery and individual accountability, and systems thinking. Join us. Welcome, Andrew. Good to see you. Alexandra. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. And you can just call me Alex. Totally fine. It doesn't take so much airspace. (laughs) I'll do that. Yeah. So please share with listeners uh, something about who you are and the work that you do. Yeah. So... I am I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Curious Lion, and we help 
primarily sales teams, but I would say companies um, in any team inside company create cultures of continuous learning. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been, been five, six years of running that business. I have a background in adult education. I spent 12 years working at KPMG where I did this for that entire time. And so it was interesting to kind of see it in a, inside a corporate environment. And yeah, for the last five or six years, we've been trying to undo everything that I learned at KPMG <laughs> and, and yeah, trying to innovate with the, the clients that we work with. So a couple of questions there. Obviously, you've used the word curious and curious is in your, your company title. Why curious lion? Uh, well, so the other thing you may have picked up as I know you have as well, clearly is an accent. So your listeners may pick that up. I'm originally from South Africa where I, I grew up and I've been in the States for about 12 years now, but it's been a really cool, cool process to kind of bring that South African side into, into the, the naming of the business. And yeah, so the lion is a, is a tip to Africa. It's a tip to, I'm also a Leo by, okay. <laughs> by birth. And so it, it's always, I've always had an affinity for lions. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, the rooming back five, six years ago, and I just basically put those two words together, and I was like, "That's a that's a cool name for a company." That's a cool name. I like that infusion of you know your background into to where you are now. The other thing I wanted to ask was, you know, you talked about working in adult education in KPMG. Can you just talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Because I think you know, listeners of Right Medicine probably ha- you know, have a different experience of adult learning and yeah. adult education in the healthcare workplace. Can you just talk a little bit about mm-hmm. how that looks in a corporate setting? Yeah. So we were responsible for training a multinational population of audits professionals, right? So it's accountant by background. I think this is where it's similar to, to folks who are working in medicine. I know continuing education is a big part of what you do. And so there's there's a there's a third party in all this. There's a licensing board that sort of has to certify the quality of the education to award the credits, right? And so we were dealing with the exact same thing. Those were professional education credits for qualified accountants, of which I am one. And yeah, so so that was a similarity of it. In the other characteristics of that environment, it's very it's a, a, a multinational professional services firm so it's you know very time is money literally right so people are very busy putting out a lot of different fires Mm. and it's a you know you're kind of competing against that it it was difficult to be honest i mean i'm just i'm like reflecting on now i haven't really thought about it that much for for a long time but it was it's really tough because you've got this really busy professional and then you've got these like i mean i'll be honest draconian uh sort of laws and regulations that you have to follow from these professional bodies Mm. and so you end up having to create education which absolutely doesn't educate anybody it is really is to check the box exercise and that's i mean i spent my 10 years 10 12 years of my life doing that and it's yeah it's, it's a little frustrating you know it we also saw we got to do a lot of other training as well which is really transformational and taking people from apprentice to, you know, to kind of professional. And that was really cool. And that was very peer to peer based and that kind of stuff. But the, yeah, the, the, the continuing education piece of which, you know, the accountants have to do 40 hours a week. I don't know what it is for mm. people in your audience, but 
It was brutal. I mean, it's just, it's that whole system is broken in my mind. I think that uh, your description of checking the box is something that certainly a lot of learners in the continuing medical education space will recognize. And the flip side of that is that the education providers are always trying to kind of find, you know, creative and innovative and accessible ways to make sure that education is not simply about yeah. you know, box checking and, and is really kind of focused on learning and behavior change. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Two more questions around the kind of curious theme. One is, you know, I listened to your podcast, uh, Learning Learning Culture, and at the beginning of your podcast, you have a voiceover of an English-speaking yeah. gentleman. Is it John Reith or is it someone else? I, I, I keep meaning oh, to research. I Who is this know. person? <laughs> I I I know the answer. My team has that answer readily. Mm. I I wish you had asked me before. I would have. Had I, a few, know, but I know. I know. <laughs> I'll put it. I'll get it. I'll get it to you, and you can put it in the show notes. But yeah, I definitely know who it is. I can't think of it now. No, it's 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 really it's really interesting. And then the final thing here, you you were in KPMG for twelve years. That culture became challenging. Why? Yeah, I mean, it was is those those ongoing demands of having to create 40 hours of something to satisfy, you know, the, the licensing board, it resulted in this very kind of top down broadcast. Like you just, you're just teaching you, what you're doing is, is what we were doing was broadcasting people, things that they should know, trying to stuff it into their heads, literally. Mm -hmm. And then checking that they remembered those things. Yeah. That was that's all we're doing. And that is not learning. Like I, there is no way you tell me that you can tell whether that person can actually do something different now because of what you just did or we forced them to do. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, so it's basically that. And, and it's funny when I started Curious Lion, I went straight back into that routine of creating that top-down stuff. And I was, my initial idea was like, oh, we'll just do better content. We'll just create, we'll use high production video and we'll, really think about that learning journey and, and all of that. But my whole view on that has really evolved. That's just one tiny part of a much bigger puzzle. So that problem of retention recall, it's not enough. So let's talk about learning culture and how you define that, because that seems to be the container for, for what you're doing now in your work. Yeah. Yeah, so learning culture to me is is a set of norms that a group of people follow for how to learn on their own and together. Right? And so it's it's a it's a systems wide view, it's an it's an ecosystem, it's a a set of behaviors of conditions that allow learning to happen. And it's a very, you know, Peter Senge and and all those great writers in in his sort of lineage talk about learning organization, right? And that this idea of this like almost organism, you know, you could say learning organism, which all of us are, right? Actually, if you think about it, but thinking of that at the, at the, at the company level. So what does a learning organization look like? This autonomous learning system of people learning and sharing and collaborating that's going to create knowledge and more than just knowledge, it's going to create people that can do things far greater than the sum of its parts. And so how do you, first of all, I think that that description of learning culture is something that people working in healthcare would recognize. Certainly there's been a move over the last few years to 
think about health systems as learning systems. And there's a whole, I think some of that work comes from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, but I'll, I'll double check that and make mm-hmm. sure to put a link in the, the show notes. But that idea that the workplace organization is itself a learning culture, but how do you, what are the building blocks of a learning culture? Yeah. A shared vision is, is is probably first and foremost, right? Having a north star of what are we working towards here? What is what do we want to see? What is our impact going to be in the world? So that's got to be in place, and it's and the shared part is key. It's not a vision that's top down and created by a marketing team, right? It's a truly Peter Senge talks about shared vision being the the sum of personal visions of everyone in the company. Right, so that's that's really what we're talking about here, and there's a whole process to allow that to emerge. Then there's the the sort of the team learning aspect of it, which is peer to peer, collaborative, social. You know, the, there's content plays a part, but people consume content very differently these days, and you've got to give options, and you've got to give, you know, you've got to really be concise. Like, there's a whole you know a whole lot we can talk about there. Mm. There's also the personal element. Peter Singh, talks about personal mastery and it's just this idea of, you know, the individual accountability for learning. So how, as someone in this team or in this ecosystem, what is my view on learning? Do I see like, for example, failure as a good thing? Do I see it as a learning opportunity? Do I take accountability for things that happen to me or do I blame other people all the time? You know, it, little things like that. So just that, that personal approach to learning. And sort of learning how to learn fits under that as well, mm-hmm. which I think is a really, you know, vastly under-trained or under-focused area for people. Like just learning how to learn and how you, learning how you learn, mm-hmm. especially, so so key to to teach people. And then I think, yeah, I think that that might be it. Maybe systems thinking as well is worth a, a mm-hmm. separate call out there to really look at how this all fits in together and how. The feedback that that's created within the system, the the interplay between things. If you move something here, what impact does it have elsewhere? Like, I think that's also an important piece of it as well. So, systems thinking, learning about learning, shared vision, content—four things that we can dig into just a little mm. bit there. Can we start with that shared vision piece? How do you, you know, when you're working with an organization? And actually, maybe you should say a little bit more about how you work with organizations to create a learning culture in the first place. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, so first and foremost, uh, a conversation has to happen around what are we trying to achieve here in terms of actual business metrics? So do we want to reduce expenses? expenses? Do we want to grow revenue? Do we want to... It gets a lot... More, that's very high level, but it gets mm-hmm. you know much more granular, especially if we're focusing on a specific team, sales team, right? So then it's metrics around that. So what are we looking to actually impact here? Then we want to identify a role or a group of people, usually so that we call that a team. You know, we want to identify a team. So it's your sales team or your this team, that team. And we want to show how the that team and the people within it can impact those business metrics through a list of actions. So what are the desired actions? You can think of behaviors, mindsets, mm-hmm. anything like that that we want to see happen that we believe together with our, you know, the, the business uh, executive sponsor will impact those metrics. And so, and so the kind of, that's the strategy part of sort of 
setting that all out and saying, okay, so these are the these are the activities and and actions that you want to see. All right, so now how are we going to create the behavior change for that to happen? So the next step is to kind of build out well, what is an ideal version of this this archetype, this person look like? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's we typically do a kind of a radial chart around mm-hmm. skills, competencies, etc. That the client, and this is where the shared vision part comes in, right? So it's co-created and it eventually creates this mental, this no, no mental, this visual picture of where what good fully looks like, right? And then we can go and talk to each individual or, or actually not talk to them, but just survey them so they can self-assess where they are mm. on this new spectrum, right? And then they get these slightly different shapes, right, within that radial thing. And so now they have a blueprint of where they are and they also obviously see where they could be. And so then we design all the different learning journeys that can improve all the different arcs of that radar, right? Of that um, sort of sunburst. And and so now you now you've got all of these kind of mapped out. This can be done one by one, and and you sort of take people through. Obviously, it takes a long time to have all of the pathways mm-hmm. there, but that's eventually the end goal. And then you've got people then can decide. All right, I need to improve on this axis, right? And so I'm gonna I'm gonna take that learning journey. Yeah, so that's sort of the micro behavior. We also look at a macro perspective as well through all of this. So what are the, the conditions for learning? And we have a, a, um, a scorecard that we use that measures 40 things. And we were able to perform a diagnostic with a company to essentially measure their health of their learning culture across these 40 aspects. And that gives us a really good picture of where to focus to start to improve, right? So now we've got interventions at the macro level. Right. I'll give you an example of one of those just so you know. So it's like, we we prioritize internal talent promotions, right? Like that that's one key thing. It's been shown that, that if you do that, that is going to help increase your learning culture, right? Mm. We have clear like decision-making paths for people or decision-making factors so that they're, so no one becomes a roadblock. You know, there's no like roadblocks created within a company, right? So that's another thing. So people can go and actually do things to learn. So we got 40 of those. And so we, we're measuring that and we're helping the client then figure out, okay, here's where to improve. And we've got remedial actions there. And now we've got those learning paths that we talked about and we run programs. And so the key thing there in the rollouts and deployment is to really make a big impact up front. Like motivation plays a huge part of this. I'm a huge believer in the self-determination theory. And mm-hmm. so we use that a lot in our work and, and making sure we check the boxes on, <laughs> excusing the, the reference there, but you know, on the competence I'm going to forget what those three things are, uh, relatedness and authority, I think it is. Okay. And so, you know, making sure all of those conditions are in place. So, so we get that motivation. The program itself needs to really get people to quick wins early. And that's so key as well. We can talk about what those programs look like as well, if you want. And then once that's working and it's going, you're not, people are not going to see massive behavior change in, in 30 days, right? Mm-hmm. But if we then, if we can get that initial quick wins, we start to kind of get buy-in from for the right people and we can start to scale this. And, and so it's always, always like typically starts with a pilot and that, that pilot, we try and do a hundred day pilots and then that eventually starts to prove out the worth of something. Now we can start to add maybe new groups within that. We can add new programs mm-hmm. and so it builds. Yeah. And then eventually the, our goal with, with our clients is that we build something that they own and can run it should somewhat run by itself actually at some point, but without us, right? So that's, that's kind of the, the end goal. 
but it takes time to get there. And it sounds as though you're spending a lot of energy and investment on building internal motivation. I think one of the, and we can come back to that, I think one of the challenges in continuing medical education and continuing education in healthcare is that so much of the motivation is external. It's a requirement. Mm. Yeah. You know, in order exactly. to maintain your license, you've got to get so many CE credits a year, so many C- CME credits and so on. I'm curious about the self-assessment. It sounds very familiar. Is it my snapshot? Mm. No, but no. I know Charlotte Crowther right. really well. Yeah. I yeah. It it's it's similar. It's the exact same concept. Right. Yeah. Right. It's getting people to self-assess them themselves on on that scale. Yeah. But it's really interesting you know, how you Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you, you, you know my snapshot? Oh, I'm actually working with Charlotte myself at the moment because I'm building out a curriculum oh, awesome. for medical writers who want to specialize in, in CME content. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working with Charlotte. And I like the way you talk about aligning the, the micro and the macro. Yeah. And what you said there does kind of take us to content. I know you said a few minutes ago that, you know, we're all consuming content in different ways now. What kind of content and in what type mm. of formats and delivery modalities do you find you are creating mm. to support a learning journey? Yeah. <laughs> the short answer is all of them. Right. The longer answer is, so I, I think people, especially millennials, which make up over almost 90% of the workforce now and, and this will this will change obviously in, in very soon. But the content consumption is a skill and a curse, right? And so everyone I think in that cohort is really most people are really, really good at going on the internet, quickly finding something, right? We also unfortunately have there's so that's the pull aspect mm-hmm. of it. We also have the push aspect. So we've got different social media apps, etc., YouTube, whatever, just there's tons of, there's a fire hose of information, right? So finding things is not the problem. There, we could talk about the, like making, vetting that it's a credible source. I think that's a very important, like learning how to do that, how to assess the source and stuff is also useful. But then there's the, the curse side of it, obviously that there's just, it's too much. How do we, what, how do you know? It's sort of related to the, the credibility of the source question, right? Cause it's like, how do I know which one to trust you? And mm-hmm. I just need to pick one, that kind of thing. So. Long way to answer your question. What we try to do here is we play the role. And, and actually, recently heard a company and talk about how they don't, they kind of leave it up to the learner to find it because of the things we just talked about. Learners are so good and comfortable with going on YouTube, Googling, you know, whatever. But I think that's a cop out. I, I don't believe in that. What we do is curate content mm. and then we provide. So, we'll, and we'll curate and prioritize, right? So, there is like, obviously, we all know a never ending black hole on whatever topic you want to learn about. What we'll do is try to find the one to two of the best pieces of content out there. It could be a podcast, it could be an article, it could be a book, it could be a TED Talk, you know, whatever it is, right? So, videos curate that content. Mm-hmm. We also create, and I think our creation focuses on summary, on context, on you know, analysis, right? Those kind of things. So that's like, right. watch this thing and focus on this or think about that or whatever. So it's it's that kind of thing. 
and so we we what we the service we provide is curating then kind of helping with that summary assessment etc and then we also provide like a long list of other stuff right and and so you always have like we're not trying to say this is the only thing you should look at or read or watch or whatever on this topic here's also recommended and then if you have time go on the rabbit hole you know we out that's what our team does we're all like 100 percent curious so yeah I, that's how we kind of think about it you know like it, it's not about don't get fancy like i'm i'm not really not a big believer in buying a lot of off-the-shelf content i think that's again unless the person who's created it is very credible source that also has the ability to teach mm-hmm. uh, i don't know if you alex have have found that skill set in many people but it's not in my case often in the same person right where they're an expert in their domain and they're a gifted teacher mm. that's a very very rare combo and so you know yeah that, that's kind of how i look to to find content yeah no i think that's I think you're on point there. It's, you know, one of the part of the model in a lot of continuing medical education is that there will be multiple people involved in developing content from writers to strategists to instructional designers, perhaps to graphic designers, maybe. Mm -hmm. But there will be a subject matter expert who is usually a clinician and they will provide the expertise to guide the shape and the direction of the, the content. And faculty will, you know, depending on the format, they will be involved in that teaching component. And that's where, you know, challenges can really start to to emerge because beyond doubt, they are the subject matter experts. But to your point, often don't Mm. necessarily, they're not in that gifted teacher category. You know, one one thing I'd add to that, it's a great point, I totally agree with you, is it needs to be entertaining as well, right? right? You have to engage people. Like, and and I I use that word entertaining deliberately because it's a lot of people, a lot of people misinterpret that and they're like, oh, it must be like funny or it must be you no, know. mm. no. Like it it needs to be it needs to entertain people as much as it educates people because if you're not getting both of those things right, you don't you're just not getting attention, and and attention is the currency here, right? We all that's what we want. Yeah, and so in that vein a couple of questions about how you're developing the content. Are you working with instructional designers? Are you working with, you know, who is it who's doing the curation? Yeah. So we have a team of learning architects and that's their sole job is to do research, to design, to write. I am cultivating a highly creative team to Mm. be able to do that. Their job needs to be very creative. The research part, we have some people who are better at that than others, but I like very much foresee the research part being able to be, is going to get easier and easier with technology like AI and stuff coming out. The, to me, the creative part, and especially the ability to write creatively, but also think creatively, et cetera, is mm. the key thing here. And so that's, that's, that is the team I'm building and, and what, we, what we are equipped to do. I love that term learning architect. And when I think about thinking creatively in terms of that curation aspect. One of the skills there is connection, being able to connect the different layers of ideas and also have some sense of their source material. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that we find, particularly in millennial created content, is that there's a lot of wheel reinvention. 
because people yes. don't necessarily seem to have that depth skill where they're able to see that this idea is actually <laughs> millennials old. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's 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 a deeply ph- philosophical point, but they're not able to necessarily kind of yeah. see see the source of the idea. I'm conscious yeah. of our time. You know, you've been talking about uh, workplace learning, learning cultures, the marriage of macro and micro. What are some of the things that you see as being really important in developing lifelong, agile, reflective learners? Because the reflective learner is mm-hmm. it's definitely something that has a lot of currency in the CMECE world. And I think you kind of hinted at, hinted at that when you were talking about that you know, self-determination theory and that self-assessment right. process. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's um, reflection is a huge, huge mm. part of this. Yeah, I'll throw coaching out as well because I think that's a very big part of this as well. And I don't know how if that applies to to the world that you're in, but talk about reflection first. It's I have this idea of sort of, of a circle of learning, and so the the circle is at its smallest when the learner is just consuming information. All right. Once they start to do something with that, the circle gets a little bit bigger. So now they're consuming and doing something. Mm-hmm. Once they start to reflect on what they do and then go, oh, this is what I can do better next time. And like really in that Anders Ericsson, you know, deliberate practice sort of right. approach is it's getting bigger. So now they're doing, now they're consuming, doing and reflecting. Then add sharing to it, it gets bigger. So now I'm talking to someone else, I'm getting feedback on it, I'm now having to explain my thoughts and I realize I don't actually know it as well as I did, et cetera, et cetera. And so now that circle's getting a lot bigger. That's where, so first of all, most people stop at just consuming, right? right. Some yeah. people do, some people, the sharing part is where I, if, if I can get 80% of a company up to that stage, brilliant, right? There's one more step that makes the circle the biggest and that is teaching. So if we can start to get people to then go in and and my biggest thing is you don't have to be the world's leading expert or you in your company, the number one expert on that thing to be able to teach it because it is valuable for you to teach what you've just learned because you know exactly where everyone else is coming from. You, you are that period, that point of like not knowing it. it was just a few days or weeks ago for you. So really encouraging that and getting people to to share and 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 teach what they're learning is I mean it's an incredible thing once you see it start to work in a company. So consuming, doing, reflecting, sharing, teaching, five five circles that are I love that. I mean obviously yeah. in in medicine there's the see one do one teach one model which yeah. has been discredited you know, over the oh. years, yeah, a lot of people get very sniffy about that, that that's not really how we learn anymore. And But I don't actually think that's the case, precisely because of that teaching component. If you mm. really want to learn something deeply, you got to teach it to somebody else. Yeah. And I think 100%. That's, that's what you're, you're kind of reflecting, reflecting there. Richard Feynman would agree with us. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now you're writing a book. Is that correct? Are you writing a book at the moment? I I am actually. Yeah, I am. So what's what's the book going to focus on? Yeah, so I this the micro macro kind of perspective we talked about earlier. So what I'm I think the a name I'm playing with now is is total enablement. Now the the enablement part originates from 
an audience that we work with, sales teams, they have a function in the, it sort of originated in B2B SaaS companies, software as a service okay. companies, and it's it's sales enablement, right? So, and I think it's just a brilliant, brilliant term to describe what we're trying to do. We're trying to enable people mm. to reach their full potential or enable people to do something differently, right? And then in the service of selling more, whatever it is for that company, of mm-hmm. course. So, but I love the idea of enablement. I think it's a great term. And that particular function is uh, still, it's very young and it's kind of gone through the, a bit of an identity crisis recently because of layoffs and all that in, in the tech yeah. industry. And so there's, I think there's an opportunity to, I saw an opportunity uh, towards the end of last year to try and take a stab at describing what it is we're trying to do. And I'm calling a total enablement to really get that holistic, integrated sort of perspective on it. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like to do in the book, and by the way, anybody listening, this is anything I I basically write now on LinkedIn or that goes up on my blog is probably going to end up in the book, you know, so you can kind of follow along as I go, because I'm discovering this as I go along. I don't know the answer right now. Otherwise, I probably would have written the book. But that's the goal is to write about total enablement and sort of make it a practical guide for anybody who wants to enable a team of learning, mm. you know, to, to take place, a team of people to learn autonomously in that sort of learning organization aspect. And that's one of the things that's really shifted in, in the CME, CE world is that there is an increasing focus. So there has been an increasing focus on team-based education over the last few years. And there, there is now a whole that's kind great. of joint accreditation process around accrediting programs that are specifically, you know, for teams by teams. So I'll make sure to at this point have your contact information, your LinkedIn uh, profile in the show notes so that people can reach out to talk to you about that. Any final thoughts before we wrap up here? My would be more a question. What would you say is the biggest concern or, or challenge or question that people in your audience have? I think it's around behavior change, you know, how Mm. to use education and adult learning in a way that really fosters behavior, meaningful behavior change that will translate into healthcare improvements. That's the line of, that's the thread of connection and direction Mm. is how to use, you know, these checkbox forms of, you know, bites of education to really foster significant change in what people mm. are doing how their people are how they're doing it and the impact that that makes on healthcare mm. quality well, so i've got a i think a good closing thoughts on that because i look at behavior change as identity change so mm. i think for to to be able to get someone to change their behavior they've got to want to do it and a few conditions have to be met they have to first number one have an idea a, a clear picture of their current reality. Now, there's a lot of things holding people back from that current reality, from seeing that current reality. And a lot of those things are internal, right? They're, they're, they're living in, in doubt. They're living in limiting beliefs. They're living in whatever it is, right? That is, is stopping them from seeing and accepting current reality as it is mm-hmm. and not, not getting down about it, but just accepting it, right, as it is. Then there must be some dissatisfaction with that current right. reality. Then there must be some vision of what success or what a better future could look like. And then there must be a clear pathway to show that it's possible to go from current reality 
to future state, or at least at least an idea of what the next step should be. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think if you get if you get those things right, then that's all you can do, really, because then it, then it's over to the learner, right? They need to decide. Like I, if they if they go through that process and go, yeah, that, I actually do want to have that better life or that better car or that better body or that better job or you know, whatever. Mm-hmm then they can go on that path of development and it, and it's got to, it's self-determined right self-determination that is the core of this conversation curious yeah. lion andrew barry thank you so much for sharing your insights with listeners of right medicine thank you so much for having me alex If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website, where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.